0: But in this text, Jesus is not dead yet, but he is suffering. And I came across this testimony of a man who served in the Civil War with the Army of the Potomac, the Union Army. And they took place in the Battle of Gettysburg. And he, he talked about this 34-mile march from Manchester to Gettysburg, which ultimately ended with this incredible battle. And he said, the march with the clouds of dust and the perspiration and the blood-chafed limbs was the hardest experience of my whole long war service. In other words, he's saying it is sometimes harder to march than it is to fight. Now, I don't want us to diminish anything about what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. The cross is central. It is at the heart of our Christian faith. It is the heart of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And we'll talk more about that next week. But we can focus on the death of Christ to the neglect of the journey of Christ to that cross. In other words, the journey to that cross was also a mechanism of suffering. His race, excuse me, is almost done. But he must continue to run to the end. In 2015, at the Pepsi team invitational track meet, runners were competing um, Uh, from the universities of Oregon, Kentucky, and Washington. And during the steeplechase competition, which is a a 300-meter race that involves jumping over obstacles and through obstacles, um, so it's a pretty intense race, it was coming to an end, and Oregon's Tonguai Pepiat was ahead down the final stretch. And had the race locked up, or so it seemed, As he was coming down the final stretch, he started to to get the crowd involved, kind of running by, and the crowd's there yelling at him, and he's kind of waving his hands in the air, but the whole action of getting the crowd involved and waving his hands in the air slowed him down, and there was a runner from Washington by the name of Marin Simon who was sprinting as hard as he could, and he passed Papiat and beat him by one foot, he didn't endure to the end. He didn't run the race to the end. And friends, it's easy when we think that we've, we've got the, the race won or, or things are coming to a close to simply give up or, or slow down. But Jesus here in our text is pressing on with endurance to the end. And his endurance is agonizing, and we found out last time that it is undeserved. He's suffering innocently, but this cup that the Father has planned for him to drink is a cup that he must swallow. So this morning, I would like for for us to consider this passage in this light. As the passion story continues, Mark shows us the agonizing endurance of Jesus as he journeys to and hangs on the cross. The agonizing endurance on his way to the cross, the agonizing endurance on the cross, and the agonizing endurance around the cross, which has a little bit more to do with the verbal abuse that he was getting while he was hanging on the cross. There's a wonderful painting by Holman Hunt, it's there actually in your bulletin, although the ink kind of didn't work for us in the printing yesterday. Um, But it's a beautiful picture that he painted in 1873 entitled The Shadow of the Cross, and it portrays Jesus as a teenager or a young man stripped to the waist, working in the carpenter shop, kind of raising his hands out, enjoying the beam of sun that is shining in. And the workbench behind him and his outstretched arms cast a shadow on the wall behind him. And in this shadow, or I should say this shadow, ends up being the focus of this painting. And this painting depicts something very true. That the work of Jesus was not only accomplished here on the cross, but was in fact a work which began from the moment of his conception this is what he came to do and that's the point here of this of this of this painting is to show jesus before his official earthly ministry anticipating what he was coming to do, and the shadow was there, and we see now the shadow and this reality being worked out, especially as we've gone through the beginnings of the Passion Week. Let me just remind you what has happened in the past few hours. He's been arrested by a mob of temple guards and Roman soldiers, along with Judas, who ultimately betrays him. He's taken to the home of the high priest, where there's a kangaroo court. If you remember, there was testimony given, but the testimony didn't agree, and so they finally accused him of blasphemy because he claimed to be uh, God. So he's now taken to Herod's palace where he's brought before Pilate, and again, both Pilate and Herod do not find Jesus guilty. And Pilate in particular understands that the reason that Jesus is there is because of the envy of those religious leaders who want to get rid of him. So Pilate comes up with a plan. He, he thinks maybe he can, he can have the, the sympathy of the, of the crowd and they will bring uh, Jesus out because on that day, he offers a, a, a criminal to be set free. But instead of choosing Jesus, they choose Barabbas. So he is sent to the soldiers to be scourged with a cat of nine tails. And before they took him to be crucified, the soldiers mock him and, uh, and, and, and they put a kingly attire on him with a... With a, a, a And they bow to him, and they mock him as king, and they spat on him, and they beat him. All these things are happening. And so now the cat is finished with playing with the mouse, and the soldiers begin the journey with Jesus down the road called the way of suffering, which leads to Golgotha, the place of the skull. Probably called that because it was kind kind of bald in shape, as well as its association with death. And here we find ourselves now in this text where we find Jesus now beginning this journey. This is where Mark picks up the story here. And for, for, uh, for our purposes this morning, I want to begin now by looking at the struggle for the cross. And we begin by looking at verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha which means the place of the skull. Now, Jesus, having endured the suffering at the hands of soldiers, is now given this crossbeam, which is also called the patibulum, to carry. But he's gone through all this scourging, all this suffering. He has no strength whatsoever. He is at the point of death. And so what we have here is we see his human weakness on display. This is not a failure of Jesus' perfections, but it's evidence of his entire humanity. Jesus isn't failing because he can't carry the cross. He's showing us who he really is. He is truly suffering on his journey to the cross. And it's a reminder to us that Jesus' deep suffering was not somehow diminished by his divinity. He was a man through and through, and he would face this cup of suffering as a man. He would suffer. He would endure. And he demonstrates his understanding and knowledge of our human suffering. He is in agony at this point, friends, but he's not yet on the cross. And then, of course, Simon of Cyrene comes by, and he picks up because he's forced to pick it up, this crossbeam. Now, this, this news would be an encouragement to the Roman readers as you catch what is being said here. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. We're not positive about this, but there is a Rufus that is mentioned in the book of Romans. And so it's very likely that the Rufus being talked about there is the same Rufus that is associated with Alexander and Simon of Cyrene here that there's this awareness by these people oh we know that person. all right It's kind of like it's kind of like going to you know going to some place in, you know, in, in South America and talking to some, some missionary there and say, hey do you know J.D Bautista? Oh yeah I met him in Vienna. I mean, we wouldn't know it except for the fact that we know it. We know the names of people, and here we have these people mentioned as if everyone's supposed to know who these people are. I'm writing this to the church in Rome, you know Alexander and Rufus, so this would be an encouragement, but it would also bring authenticity to what Mark is saying in giving this account. Now, we don't know much about Simon except for the fact that he was from Cyrene, which is a reason in in present-day Libya. So it's likely that he was an African proselyte Jew. And he is compelled into service by the Roman soldiers. He's compelled to pick up this crossbeam, which would not have been an easy thing to do. Now, he probably got up that morning, you know, it's Passover, and what am I going to do? I need to get some food for the family. So he goes out and maybe he's picking up some bread and there's some commotion going on. So he goes to see what's happening. And before long, he finds himself in the greatest story ever told. And all he went out to do was to get some bread. Well, it may not have been coffee. It may not have been pizza or something like that. But he, just, he was just doing the normal, run-of-the-mill, ordinary task. But he finds himself now in this story. Now, not only do we see human weakness, but there's a picture here that's going on. On one level, this story, it's just, you can say it's just physical help that Simon brings. But it's also, on on Mark's level, as he's sharing this gospel, something more is going on. Jesus has literally carried his cross, uh, not just from Pilate's headquarters, but he's been doing it ever since. Caesarea Philippi. Let me explain what I'm saying here, because in, in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, when he's in Caesarea Philippi, he's asking his disciples, who do men say that I am? And Peter, of course, you know, he says, well, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Well, then what happens is that Peter ultimately rebukes Jesus because Jesus says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be I'm going to be mocked, I'm going to be scorned, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to rise the third day. And Peter, of course, doesn't want any of that. And so in that whole story, in Mark chapter 8, here's what Jesus says. In in talking after that encounter with Peter, he says this, Mark chapter 8, verse 34, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said, if anyone... Would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So, this cross metaphor, this cross motif, this cross idea is something that Jesus brings in to his teaching with his disciples. And it is a metaphor that helps us understand because it symbolizes discipleship and submission to God's rule. Jesus' own cross becomes the symbol of his own submission to God's demands, even unto death. Judas has betrayed him. Peter has denied him. The rest of the disciples have abandoned him, but now Simon is compelled to take up the cross and follow Jesus. Now, friends, here's a picture of discipleship, of following Jesus, and of carrying his cross down the road of suffering all the way to the place of execution. Suffering with Jesus, suffering for Jesus, suffering because of Jesus. This is his human weakness on display for us. But we also see human resolve. When they arrive at Golgotha, the soldiers offer Jesus a pain-killing drug. I think if you were being brought to be crucified, you probably would want some. And in your, your humanity would say, oh yeah, don't just give me one swig, give me all you got. Let me just tell you, every bit of Jesus' humanity here is saying yes. I want to swallow it, I want to swallow it, I want to swallow it, because he is in agony, he is in pain. But notice what verse 23 says, and and they offered him wine to mix with myrrh, but he did not take it. That's no small statement. Jesus refuses what might be the only act of compassion in this whole gruesome story. He refuses it. He is not willing to dull the pain of the cup of suffering that he must endure. He's not willing to to, to face the the cup having been drugged. He must face the cup with all of its dregs fully and completely to the end. And it reminds us of his resolve that is verbalized to the Father in the garden just a few Hours earlier, where he says, Mark 14, verse 36, it says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Now, if we just understand, friends, these are not just small statements of of a guy who happens to be going through the motions knowing that he's going to be crucified. He it was in agony in the garden. He's in agony now for a number of different reasons, but the agony continued. He is struggling for the cross. And then I want us to see now the struggle of the cross. And there's really four parts to it. The first part is this, this whole picture of crucifixion. Don't you love Mark's economy of words here? Look at verse 24. And they crucified him. That's it. And they crucified him. Right, there's no description. There's no emotion. There's no explicit theological truths. Those will emerge as the story unfolds. But there's a reason why the details of crucifixion are not given. Let me give you two possible reasons. The one is very, very clear and obvious it wasn't needed for that. Audience, in particular a Roman audience. They knew crucifixion well enough. Mark didn't have to say, now let me tell you a little bit about what crucifixion is. No, they know what crucifixion is. So all he has to say is, and they crucified him. And there is a huge pregnant word waiting to be discovered here. Secondly, it wasn't the ultimate focus. We talked a little bit about this last week. Crucifixion ultimately is not the focus. It's what Jesus accomplished through the crucifixion that ultimately is the focus. Other people have been crucified. But Jesus crucified was crucified and bore the wrath of the Father which is the ultimate point, because he is that sacrifice once for all. He paid the sin for the many. Now, crucifixion was the cruelest and most painful and most humiliating form of capital punishment in the ancient world. And Rome had perfected the technique to ensure maximum suffering. And Rome was not afraid to use it on the worst criminals. You know, there's a story of Julius Caesar, and you know, Roman leadership, of course, was always very um, volatile. And there was a season where, where Julius Caesar was uh, not being, not faring too well in the political climate there, and he actually had to leave Rome via ship, and he on his way to the island of Rhodes, and on his way, the ship was attacked by pirates, and he was taken captive, and they held him for ransom. 12,000 gold pieces was the fee, and he spent 40 days with his captors, and many times he would jokingly talk to those captors by saying, hey, listen, someday I'm going to capture you, someday I'm going to crucify you, and it's going to happen to all of you. Ha, 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 ha. They paid the ransom, the pirates got their money, and they took off as soon as Caesar Got off the boat and onto another boat. He amassed an army, obviously on the sea, and chased them down, captured them, and to a man, all of them were crucified. Now, listen, Rome had a habit of doing this. The crucifixion was used for the worst of criminals, it was there to show extreme contempt. ...for the person who has been condemned. There was nothing compassionate about it at all... ...except a little bit for the drug that they give at the beginning. Let me just walk a little bit through what crucifixion is. Not because I want to uh, gross anyone out... ...but there's a need for us at least to understand a little bit... ...about why this was such a difficult and horrible torture. It involved nailing the feet flat against the wood. I know in our minds we have certain images... That may or may not be true, um, but the, the, you, you do it like, you know, one foot over the other and a nail goes through, but your foot is flat against the wood, which makes your, your legs kind of at an angle. And then the, the, the arms at the wrist are nailed on, on, the, on the sideboards there, on the, on the beam that goes across, but, but, but above the head. And so now what you have is you have this, this pressure of pushing up from your feet and, and pulling up now through the wrists. That was extremely painful, but that was not what killed you. What killed you was the fact that you struggled to breathe, and things that were happening to your body internally. And what Jesus had to do, just like anyone else, is he he would have to just push up with all all his might, with his feet, so he could he could breathe out and then suck a little bit of air, and then he'd you'd kind of step back for a little bit of rest. You may have seen some crosses that have a little, little place where you can kind of, f- for your, your, your rear, and maybe even something to put your feet on. And the purpose of that wasn't to make your crucifixion more comfortable. The purpose of that was to prolong your crucifixion. So this whole process of going up and down, up and down, up and down would last longer, and you would suffer more. And so ultimately, the reason someone died was because they could not breathe. They died of suffocation. But the instinctive need of the body was to breathe. So you push up. So it's no small thing when Scripture says, and he breathed his last. Friends, it was a horrible, horrible way to die. The shame of such death was so great that Roman orator... Cicero said the following, the the, the very words cross should be far removed not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, his ears, the mere mention of them that is unworthy of a Roman citizen and a free man. So it's no small thing for Jesus to be crucified. But here's the problem, friends, that we've had 2,000 years of church history to domesticate, to sanitize and sentimentalize the cross. And now the, the horror of the cross is gone and the words they, they crucified him don't shock anymore. In many cases, the cross has become a, a piece of decoration, a trendy jewelry, rather than a symbol of remembrance of the death and the suffering of Jesus Christ. And conversely... We must be careful that we're not transfixed with the physical suffering and fail to see the deeper meaning. Mark chapter 10, verse 45 reminds us once again the Son of Man has come not to be served, but to give his life a ransom for many. So, friends, from, from a theological perspective, we need to be careful to see the suffering and the struggle for what it is. But to remember that that struggle is not ultimately the payment. But what we see there is the humanity of Jesus and the fact that he had to walk this path and drink this cup. But that cup included this this journey to the cross, this hanging on the cross, the, the, the crucifixion that he experienced. But that is not the end of the story. That is part of the story. So there's crucifixion. And then what we see next, I'm calling sport. boy if Las Vegas was around during this time, they would have all these kind of you know ways you can bet to see how long he was going to last and how much his garments are going to go for and all this kind of this is the kind of stuff. this, this, is, this is what's taking place here. It, it boggles your mind and and they divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide which each should take. On one level, it boggles your mind because how can this be happening? On another level, it's like, well, he's not going to use this anymore, so we're gonna we're gonna figure out who's gonna keep it. This is just, you know, this is like a bonus for working this hard job that we have. Now, on one level, Mark is showing us the tragedy of Jesus dying on the cross, but on another level, Mark is showing us the tragedy of man's sinfulness as he finds pleasure in moments of such gruesome torture. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been in a context where such horrible things were happening. I mean, even close to it. And, and, and just to be playing and goofing off. And, and maybe in today's world with, with phones, terrible things could be happening around us, but we're, you know, we're, we're watching something on our phone and we're not, we're not there to say, whoa, stop, no. These people are taking pleasure. They're making the most of it. Yet Mark is simply recording the story, but he's also connecting the events of this moment with Psalm 22 and verse 18. Listen to what it says. This is a messianic psalm. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This is David speaking, but he's speaking, yes, about himself, but prophetically about the Messiah, about the one to come, Jesus himself. And it's also a reminder that Jesus hung naked on the cross. There does seem to be some indication that the the, the Hebrew context and territories, that there was at least an allowance for a loincloth, but still all dignity is gone. The shame of Christ's nakedness is exposed. All this is relating to the fact that in the shadow of the cross, there is this sport taking place. Then we see the charge that is given here against Jesus. Verse 25, and it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the, the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. Now, friends, that was, that was put up there to mock him, to scorn him. The crime that he is, uh, is that he is Israel's Messiah, the anointed one. Now, we know his entire mission is to the gospel and the kingdom where God reigns. That's what he has come to do. And his crime as the son of God is announced to the whole world through this inscription. He is the king of the Jews. Look at this king. Oh, he is up for everyone to see. He's in this kingly throne hanging there on this cross. And friends, if you remember the idea of a christ And a cross, a Messiah and a a cross, or suffering, did not fit together for Peter. And that's where he rebukes Jesus. This is what Jesus says. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again, if you remember, Jesus rebukes Peter. and, And after he says, no, that can't happen. The religious leaders here, they reject this combination of of the Messiah suffering. Even modern-day Jews reject this idea of Jesus being the Messiah because they don't believe that the Messiah can suffer. They would deny that Isaiah 53 is talking about the Messiah because their Messiah will not suffer. He will be a deliverer. But here's what we find. uh, the Apostle Paul says, Christ crucified is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. And Mark agrees with Paul. Jesus hangs in shame. He hangs rejected. He hangs mocked with this title written over his head. What Mark is doing here in this gospel, in particular at this place, as he is proclaiming Christ and his gospel. And the fact that he's king. This is what they said, but they don't even realize that what they're saying in mockery is true about him. This is the gospel of the kingdom. This is the good news. Things now are coming to a head. We're we're beginning to see the the climax now uh, taking shape in this gospel story. And then in verse 27, it says this. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on the right And one on the left. And here we see Jesus identifying with sinners. He who knew no sin is numbered with the transgressors. He who knew no sin, he who was innocent, hangs between two guilty thieves. And ironically, James and John had asked to be on Jesus' right hand and left. This is not exactly what they had hoped for. And I'm sure that from a distance, if they saw this, they were consumed with what they had asked. That's speculation, but it seems to me that if I were James and John, I would be regretting that I even said those things at all. So this is a suffering on, or of the cross that took place on the cross just by means of a crucifixion and being on that cross for that period of time. Now we want to move to the scoffing around the cross, the scoffing around the cross. Mark records three separate groups of people who mock Jesus as he hangs on this cross. Now I will call the agony here the agony of verbal abuse. First of all, let's read verse 29. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Now, crucifixions were were staged in plain sight to deter lawbreakers. So the the passers-by here are just the common people who are walking down the street and along the street. You see these people who are crucified. Now, this is Golgotha. This is the place where crucifixions would take place. But people come, and sometimes they come out of interest. Sometimes they come because they're, they're just passing through. Now, the word translated derided is the word blasphemeo, which we translate blaspheme. It can be understood in a technical sense, to speak evil of God, or it can be used in a non-technical sense, just simply a verbal abuse. And I think the latter is the intention here, but Mark leaves the reader to ponder both because this verbal abuse is also to speak evil of God. They're also wagging their heads, which was a cultural gesture of contempt. It's a gesture that's mentioned in Psalm 22 which is again the Messianic psalm in Lamentations 2.15. Let me just read those for you. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Lamentations 2.15. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads. In Lamentations, the mockers are deriding those who have lost their beloved city, Jerusalem, and its glorious temple. They have been destroyed, they have been taken captive, and people now are mocking them in their suffering. Now, How ironic that the mockers in Mark 15, 29 are deriding Jesus for his prediction of another temple's destruction. Little do they know that before three days have passed, the temple that they're presently Mocking will be raised up again in the resurrection. And little do they know that by the time their generation passes, their own beloved temple will be a heap of rubble. But yes, they're going to mock Jesus. Yes, they're going to show their scorn. And so repeatedly they say to themselves, in earshot of Jesus and then to Jesus, Aha! And I don't think aha, kind of like "Ah," I think it's more "Ha." All right? It's, it's, it's a scornful statement. Ha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Now, on a human level, that makes complete sense. Staying on the cross leads to death, but coming down off the cross will lead to life. But Jesus has been teaching not human common sense, but divine truth that says, for whoever would save his life will what? Will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Jesus, in order to submit to the Father's will, must stay on the cross. Here the mockers have no idea what they're saying. They have no idea who's really in control. They have no idea of the reproach that they're bringing on themselves for the things that they're saying. That's the passers-by. After the general public passed by Jesus, um, those who have manipulated injustice to get rid of Jesus show up and take delight in their accomplishment. Verse 31 so also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Ha, 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 ha. I mean, you've got to put these little things that aren't in the text there, right? And this is what's going on. They're not just saying, oh, you know, just you know, he saved, him, saved others, he can't save himself. No, this is mockery. This is, they're snickering when they're saying, they're they're saying this to purposely insult him. They're saying it to themselves so that he can hear it. Without a doubt, they believe what they are saying. And again, think through what they're saying. He saved others. Listen, these religious leaders knew what Jesus had done in and around Galilee. They sent some of their delegation to investigate. They observed Jesus perform miracles, cast out demons, heal the sick and the lame. They saw that what he was doing was true. They're not denying the fact that what he did actually happened. They're saying, you saved others. Now see if you can save yourself. So they mean to laugh and to poke fun at Jesus in his predicament because they really don't know what he can truly do. Now, Mark has been building his case throughout his gospel, presenting the saving work of Christ. Just listen to some of the things that he's done. He's he's healed, he's rescued, he's forgiven sins, he's given new life, he's restored hope, he's rebuilt lives, he's taken hopeless victims and sent them home as missionaries, proclaiming God's mercy. He's saved others in much more profound ways, than the religious leaders will ever acknowledge. And the reality is, sorry, the reality is, Jesus cannot save himself if he is going to continue the road to drink the cup of suffering that awaits him. He must endure to the end. So he can't save himself. His only salvation is to endure all the way to the end. And they continue to mock him. And by the way, these words, mocking and deriding that we're seeing here, are in a, in a Greek text that means continual action. This isn't just one person standing up and doing it. This is a bunch of people that are walking by and saying this stuff. Here's what they continue to say. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, you catch that? Let the Christ, the King of Israel, Come down now from his cross that we may see and believe. Now, just think about that. Has Jesus not already been on display? Didn't they already have an opportunity to see and believe? But they are calling for him to do this one miracle. The other miracles weren't enough. This one miracle come down from the cross and we will see and believe. And I just want to, you know, fast forward. Just a little bit. Jesus ultimately does come down from the cross, doesn't he? And he does rise from the tomb. And many will see. And many will believe. But the two key issues that are hurled now at Jesus on the cross are the, the, the issue of him being the Messiah and in him being the king. They want a king to rule a kingdom now. Jesus has come proclaiming a secret kingdom, one that has to be believed and then be seen. And friends, it's just a, a different mindset, a different attitude, a different way of thinking. See, for the religious leaders, a Christ on the cross cannot be believed, but for Mark, only a Messiah on the cross can be believed. Those who are willing to believe will also believe. See, you've heard the expression seeing is believing. From a biblical perspective, believing is seeing. That doesn't mean you take the logic out. But you believe, and once you believe, the whole world is opened up to you because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit who illuminates the Word and the truth of God's Word in your life. So we've seen the passers by and the religious leaders. And then Mark just kind of gives us this last kind of statement here. And he talks about how the two robbers reviled him. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Both listened to all the derision and the mockery that came from the passers by and the religious leaders. And they, in their state of helplessness, they join in with the mockery and revile Jesus. We're not told what they were saying to Jesus, but we know that both mock him at the beginning. But let's remember that before the day is over, one of them believes. Now, ponder that. And I want to just pause for a little bit here, and I want to kind of dial down a little bit. And I want to ask this question. What are some lessons we can learn from the mocking in this passage? Now, this may not be exhaustive, but I think these may be helpful for us. Number one, those who mock, deride, or revile us think they know what they're talking about, but usually they don't. I don't know if you've experienced that. People say all this kind of you know bad stuff about Christianity and the Bible. and Honestly, sometimes you, you hear that. They're usually confused of what the scriptures say or what it is that we believe about Christ, or Christianity, or even the gospel. And so often, when that's happened in my context, I'm, you know, I'm saying this figuratively, but I'm shaking my head. I'm not wagging my head, but I'm shaking my head because they're arguing a case against something that isn't what we actually think, believe, or practice. You know, you ask many people, you know, have you read the Bible? Oh, yeah, I've read the Bible, you know, and they're they're antagonists. Have you read the Bible? Oh, I've read the Bible from cover to cover. But what's coming out of their mouth is evidence that what? They haven't read the Bible, and they won't concede the point. They really don't know. They think they know. They think they're experts, but they're not. Secondly, those who mock, deride, and revile us are looking to silence us because they ultimately see us as a threat. Jesus was innocent. And they knew it. But they didn't like what he was doing. They didn't like what he was saying. How his his words and life confronted their life choices. For some, gospel-centered Christianity confronts their legalistic attitudes. That's what happened with much of the religious leadership. For others... Christ-centered Christianity confronts their antinomianism or their liberal attitudes, their desire to to do whatever they please. And friends, that is far more what we are experiencing today. We want to get rid of the Judeo-Christian ethic. Why? Not because we think that religion is bad, but because it confronts what we want to do and call good and healthy and right. Get rid of it. They don't like to be told that what they're doing is an offense to God. So mockery, ridicule, and scorn are tools to salve their own consciences and to get rid of those who are a threat. Here's the third lesson. Even those who revile us in the worst way may be on their own journey to the cross. I remember when I was a teenager, my parents would host home group. I don't know what they called it back then, but that's basically what it was. I'd be upstairs in my room with my friends. My parents, with people from the church, would be downstairs. They'd be singing some songs. They'd be studying God's word. And we would be upstairs laughing at it the whole time. Mocking it. Little did I know that this mocker would one day be a person who would be leading a home group, singing those songs, studying that Bible for the glory of God. Just because someone's mocking doesn't mean that God is not at work through the mockery. So if someone comes to you and they're mocking you for your Christian faith, guess what? That might be the means by which God is choosing to bring them to himself. And you can respond in such a way that you exercise anger or you can exercise grace. But be mindful that person who is mocking you may be on his own journey to the cross. That's exactly what we find here, isn't it? So friends, don't lose heart. Don't be ashamed. Don't give up. We're called to endure hardship as a good soldier of Christ. Jesus had to endure struggle, suffering, shame, and scorn while hanging on the cross. And as followers of Christ, we are called to be in awe of Jesus. When you, when you read a text like this and you, you actually settle on, in on, on the things that he faced and, and the choices that he made and the suffering that he experienced, we should be in awe of him. We should love him that much more for what he has gone through to get to the place where he's hanging on that cross and dying for our sins. That is love. We should also be encouraged by the fact that he is demonstrating his weakness in his humanity, that he understands what it means to suffer. That he understands the kind of things that we go through, whether it be as grand as this or some kind of a, a small kind of, of suffering that is only maybe you know because you're in a relationship and someone is kind of pushing you out because of your faith. He understands the kind of suffering and abuse that we go through as his followers. But we're also challenged, because we're his disciples, to endure suffering, shame, and scorn for living and believing in Christ. That's what Paul tells us in Galatians 2.20. I'm going to change the words here a little bit. It's, he says, you know, we have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. And the life we now live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. So friends, because that is true, let's just take those four words one at a time and just think through, just briefly. We're called to endure the struggle as we face trials every day. Now, trials are not necessarily always mechanisms of, of people mocking us or necessarily related to specifically our Christian faith. In other words, you know, our, we, might, you know, we might get sick. That doesn't mean we're getting sick because we're Christians. But we just go through trials. We go through difficulties. We go through struggles. But we are called to endure during those times. And here's the, here's the, <laughs> here's the good news and the bad news, right? It doesn't stop, not until the Lord calls us home. The struggle will always be there. We are always exercising ourselves toward godliness. We are always working out our salvation with fear and trembling is is the language that it's used. That's talking about your progressive sanctification. You're becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. It's what James says. Hey, listen, I want more wisdom because with more wisdom, I'm going to be able to face that trial. When I face that trial, that trial ultimately is going to produce what? Endurance. This is what struggle is about. We face it every day, and we're called to that. So if you're struggling, guess what? You're where you need to be. Thank you, Pastor Rod. I really appreciate that. It's just the realism of what it means to follow Christ. Secondly, we're called to endure the suffering. And I think the suffering that's being talked about here is suffering that comes as a result of being a soldier of Christ. As the world fights against our faith, our loves, and our way of life, we are called then to endure that suffering as good soldiers. That's what Paul tells Timothy. I know he's a pastor, but I think it's true of all of us. We're called to endure that suffering as faithful soldiers. Then we're called to endure the shame, to endure the shame As we're ridiculed for being simple-minded or delusional people who can't live without a crutch to lean on or however else society wants to explain why it is we do what we do, there certainly will be a shaming that goes on. But we're called to endure it. Jesus hung in shame. Now we, again, focus on the cross and the ultimate atonement that takes place on the cross where Jesus breathes his last breath and dies. It's next week. But we also see him now in a position of shame and the kind of abuse that he's receiving. And friends, we're called to endure the same kind of shame for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the kingdom. And we're also called to endure Scorn. And I would I would take scorn here to be a kind of a deliberate active hatred toward us because we're followers of Christ. So this would be more evident in the in, in the, the religious leadership who are who are purposely deliberately trying to rid themselves of Christ. And ultimately, that is what happens in many places around the world where Christianity is not wanted and it's rooted out. People hate Christianity, they hate Christians many times, and in particular in our context that is slowly becoming more and more acceptable to speak and use terms and language that would be like that. There is this scorn and hatred toward those who are followers of Christ. This morning I want to leave you then with a word of encouragement because as we've seen Jesus here crucified, hanging there in shame, facing the, this, this mockery and the scorn, we are reminded of what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. And just think about all the things we've talked about here and why and how what this writer is saying is so powerful. He says, therefore. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that's referring back to all the people in chapter 11 who demonstrated these great acts of faith. He says, Let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Did you get that? I mean, it's all connected, isn't it? We read on. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Have we seen that? So that you may not grow weary or (laughs) faint-hearted. Friends, when we walk away this morning having pondered this text, It is to see the magnitude and the beauty of Christ. But having seen the magnitude and the beauty of Christ, who is our Savior in his struggle, in his suffering, and in the scorn that he's received, it is an encouragement to us to press on, to not grow weary, to not be faint-hearted with what he's called us to do as his followers. We look to Jesus and we press on with joy. And we give thanks. And we pray. And we rejoice, just like Paul said in 1 Thessalonians as we began this morning. May we endure faithfully to the end, just like Christ has done. Lord, help us today. Help us to wrap our our hearts around this task. It would be so easy in, in Jesus' humanity to give in a little bit, to fudge a little bit, to, to take some of the drug that would alleviate the pain and the struggle. But that's not what he desires to do. He, he desires to face this cup and everything that is contained in it fully and completely to the end for us. Not only did he have to go to the cross, he had to die on that cross, but he had to go to a cross fully aware of what he was doing and die fully being that sacrifice once for all. Lord, help us today embrace the magnitude of who you are, but at the same time, to rest in what it means to be a follower, what it means to be a disciple. And Lord, there's so many great benefits that come from being a disciple. And yet at the same time, because we are your disciples, Lord, you say that we will be persecuted. We will suffer. We will struggle. We will be the recipients of of scorn and scoffing. But Lord, you want us to press on. You don't want us to lose heart. You don't want us to to, to be faint-hearted at all. You want us to keep our eyes fixed on you. So Lord, help us to contemplate these words and to, to solidify them in our hearts, Lord. And by your Holy Spirit, to live our lives as you would want us to live, day by day, facing these struggles, these suffering, the scorn, and all that kind of stuff that happens to us, whether it's from the outside, people that don't know you, or whether it's even from within the church, where where people uh, are are thinking that they're behaving in ways that may honor you, but are really causing harm. Suffering can happen in so many different places, Lord. Give us strength to endure. May we follow your example. We ask this now in your precious name.